I'm really nervous right now. Why? I don't know why. I genuinely don't know why I got so into the Olympics over the last week. Probably oh. just because I have a TV and I sit next to the TV. I genuinely think this is why. Versus like in the past where I did not have a TV that I just like was installed next to. As I said, when, before we started recording, the Hong Kong women's table tennis team is playing right now in the bronze medal match. Stanley is giving me the update by text. <laughs> oh, nice. As we speak, we're up right now. So we'll Who are they see. playing against? Germany. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, actually, there was an interesting make and discord discussion that Spenny kicked off about hypothetically, if you were given four years dedicated to training, is there a Olympic event that you think you could compete in? Not like win, but you know. I gave my answer. Yeah, I saw yours. Did Stanley and I actually came up to the same conclusion even before this came up yeah. in the Discord. Do you want to explain yours? The event I could spend the next four years training for with the best chance, not to say I'd make the Olympics, but the best chance that I would feel most confident about, it'd be pistol shooting. And the reason why, if you haven't watched it, it's an indoor event where you yourself are competing against the target down the range and you just shoot a gun. I mean, there's a, I mean, there yeah. is skill, but it's not the physical rigor that you need to like be a track and field star. And also, right? which definitely we're which not, is we could not do anymore. Arguably a little bit more genetically driven. Yes. And also yeah. like team sports are really tough because you have to make sure you're matched up with a cohort of people that are good enough to qualify. Yeah. So soccer would be a good example, right? Football would be a good example. If your team sucks, but you're like a generate, you're a generational player. It doesn't really matter. I actually saw an event that I didn't know existed in the Olympics. Oh, I know why I didn't know this existed. It's its first appearance in the Olympic Games program, and it's karate. I, I'm not saying, I'm not, again, same as you and Pizzle, I'm not saying that there isn't skill, but they, besides sparring, they compete in a version called kata, which is kind of like artistic gymnastics. Oh, really? In the sense Interesting. that you compete on your own, yeah. on the floor, and you perform a routine. And then you get scored for your routine. Yeah, that's kind of like patterns. You, yes. Yeah, because they I mean, do that in Taekwondo. I'm sure. No, I'm not. Because I watched a little bit. It does obviously have a level of technical difficulty. But the reason I thought like, oh, maybe if you gave me four years is because like it's solo. My performance would be judged separately from like competing directly against someone. Yeah. So I wouldn't have to like. I don't know. I think. Be in the same yeah, that's spe- true. spot. I'm not, I'm not again, saying you're, I'm not even saying I qualify. Yeah, but of like, course. I feel, oh, maybe I'd get a shot. I, I kind of like pistol shooting because sometimes there's certain sports you play where you need to understand how to interact with your environment. So if you play beach volleyball, you, you need to know what it's like to play on a rainy day, a windy day, etc. Obviously, indoors, you just go, you show up to the range, you shoot for like 12 hours and you leave. Well, I mean, that's yeah. true for this kata version yeah, exactly. of karate, too. But Indoor silo. I don't like judge sports because it's oh. always non-transparent, right? There is a subject. So, like, if I'm shooting here. at a target, I know, like, hey, you know what? I was That's true. Closer. I mean, but you can say that about all gymnastics and diving, synchronized mm. swimming. There's a whole bunch. Yeah, right? I never watch it because I think that... Oh. I watch... No, routine. sorry. No, it's not I don't watch it, but I think I have a different perception of oh. sports that are based off of non... I get, I get objective things. I do think that when I watch those, I spend less time focused on like gold, silver, bronze, who's going to medal. But I really just appreciate everyone who like 
competes and yeah. I, I like to watch what they do. I think diving is like I think you'll like this. To watch. After this go on YouTube and search up this Vox video on the wolf spin. Ooh. Yeah, it's basically this super technical move that a lot of female gymnasts perform for maximum points, but it's also uh, interesting because they break down the physics behind it because like your center of gravity, totally. what it's like. So basically this movement is you are kind of crouched down, biased on one leg, kind of like you're stretching your groin, and then you spin on your one leg and you do a few rotations. Oh, I know it. I You've see seen them it because they all yeah, do it. Yeah, they all do it. I have wondered about that. Yeah. Okay. Thank well, the YouTube algorithm for that one. We should go into your subject. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Because it's kind of perfect segue. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners. But really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, shop discounts, and more. Let's get into it. My subject this week, why elite female athletes are turning away from major sponsors by Sapna Maheshwari. And this piece in the New York Times highlights the growing trend around female athletes who are moving away from traditional big brands, think your Nike, Adidas, New Balance, etc., and going towards smaller and arguably more niche brands for sponsorship opportunities. One of the first examples features six-time Olympian Allison Felix, who was approached by the Gap-owned Athleta, who, upon signing her, basically gave her a much more, I wouldn't say open-ended, but a less performance-orientated set of clauses, right? And what that means is that, like, your success or, like, I guess the, the level of sponsorship wasn't dependent on attendance, call it attendance, like how many races you were in or what place you finished. Instead, it was more about just, hey, you know what, we want to work with you because we believe in what you represent. And Allison Felix is actually an interesting character within this whole development because a few years earlier, she had put Nike on blast for tying sponsorship to the number of races she participated in and also whether she took time off to become a mother. Yeah. So as in they didn't make any allowances for her in terms of being pregnant and having a baby. And understandably, those things would change how many races you could probably or even what you would want to participate in yeah and in this quote this is what felix had to say about athleta i felt like i had more value as a person and that was something i hadn't experienced before so in in general like i think a lot of people actually regardless of sponsorship but just in the general realm of sports you're really just an input right like especially in major team sports like i'm sure soccer or football there's always going to be someone younger and coming up the ranks, right? You're also someone that's defined by age. You're going to get older, uh, not to discount experience, but there's a very definitive timeline, right? And there's always people that are willing to come in and do it. Unless you're a superstar, someone is potentially going to come in and take your job. Under the Athleta 
roster is also Simone Biles, who I'm sure you guys are all familiar with. She is arguably the greatest female gymnast of all time. There are people, I won't necessarily make this argument here, but there are people who say that she is the best athlete of all time. Okay, I'm okay with that too. Like, Well, some people make this argument, and it's obviously is like comparing apples and steaks or something, because people were saying, well, her track record is better than like LeBron because of the amount that she competes and wins in places. But yeah. like I said, apples and steaks, right? Basketball yeah. and gymnastics. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure I feel f- quite positive that if you're listening to this, you know who Simone Biles yeah. is. So Simone Biles recently withdrew from a few Olympic events uh, citing mental health concerns. And upon her withdrawal, her sponsor, Athleta, immediately came out in support of her. Right. They're like, yeah, this is like we support her. We support her decisions uh, and just general mental health around athletes. This is something that I think, you know, I want to touch upon later as we as we discuss this, because we've seen actually a very rapid shift. And this obviously this article, I don't doubt, is like a reaction. It's more about maybe a confirmation that there's already been a shift in the world of athletics. And when I say a shift I actually think there's something interesting in terms of a reduction in importance around the sport itself. It actually becomes less about winning and more about something else. Like yeah. I almost feel like athletes now are, by virtue of like deprioritizing winning, there may be less athletes and more entertainers, right? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I thought you were going to push back against this and maybe like, I'm actually kind of, I'm not here to make it sound negative, but I actually think that sport is now becoming secondary. Well, it depends secondary to who, right? Because I think to the athlete, the sport is still very important. I mean, their sponsorship is too, but I don't think that Simone Biles thinks to herself, oh, because I have Athleta instead of Nike, I'm not going to do my best no, in this competition. But she might have the ability to withdraw citing certain personal issues right, that maybe with, she couldn't do before. Withdrawing doesn't mean... Actually, withdrawing could potentially have extended her time as a top athlete because one of the reasons, I mean, not just gymnastics, if you perform under conditions that are less than ideal, you could hurt yourself. Yeah, especially in gymnastics. So actually, you could say that her protecting her mental health has extended her physical capability to be a top performer. But But when I think about like sport being secondary, I think maybe it becomes secondary to the rest of us, like yes. fans yeah, yeah. and sponsors. And we don't get as caught up as like the exact, was that a 10 second run? Was that a 10 point, you know, those yeah. world record breaking moments? Yeah. Well, I also happened to watch Ted Lasso. Um, Highly recommended if you haven't watched it. <laughs> Wait, you watched all of season you one? Reckon, no, you recommended this to me so long ago. This week, we were finally like, let's watch some Ted Lasso, probably just on this like sports kick. I just watched the episode where he's interviewed by a reporter and he says several times, like, it's not about the wins and losses. So as you were talking, I was thinking about that, about this like fictional character, but like the sports coach who is not caught up in like the track record, these like on number performance, but each athlete's individual well-being and just doing the best by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's return to this point. I think there's a chance we'll return to it. 
So further on in this piece, Mary Kane, a former Nike runner and who is now a Tracksmith employee. Tracksmith is this independent running brand that does a lot of really well-received apparel. So no footwear, primarily in the apparel space. Uh, And she's also the chief executive of Atalanta, New York City, a professional women's running team. And in a discussion with the New York Times, she said that various Nike coaches urged her to really cut weight. And that she ended up losing so much weight that her body started to break down. And she also was very critical of Nike's pay policies for pregnant athletes. She had two former teammates also share really negative experiences with Nike and in regards to motherhood. So going back to the whole Allison Felix thing, in 2018, after Felix and Nike had this sort of um, open air discussion around this, as she brought it to light to media and whatnot, uh, Nike changed their policy and waived performance reductions for 12 months for pregnant athletes. And it also expanded that to 18 months in 2019. Which is great. And according to Sandra Carrion John, a spokesperson for Nike, she said, We are proud of our current policy and believe it clearly conveys our support for athletes as they start their journey as mothers. To further that point, Sally Bergeson, founder and chief executive of Ozell, a small running company that's based in Seattle. Back in 2013, her brand sponsored a runner by the name of Lauren Fleshman that was pregnant at the time. And they did this under the notion and, well, I guess, you know, validated belief that no one was going to sponsor a pregnant athlete, right? And, you know, she discussed sort of the whole contractual environment. She said, yeah, up until recently, a lot of pregnancies were considered an injury. So like if you're By pregnant, brands, yeah, like they classified it the which same way. Arguably was probably a way for them to skirt, you know, paying yeah. them or whatnot. Amidst all of this, there's probably two different things that come to mind. One is brands are losing some sort of uh control. I don't know if controls are over, but they basically they're losing attraction. Attraction is a uh, that's a way better word. They're losing attraction in drawing in athletes, coupled with the fact that these smaller brands speak the language that female athletes are wanting to speak or they're on the same page. Yeah. And I think you're going to get onto this point, but it's, we've been talking about pregnancy and motherhood, but it's not just about that. Like Simone Biles is not pregnant or expecting. There is other types of appeal in not going with like a Nike. Yeah. Like basically their ability to be front and center because potentially they might be larger than the brand. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like I think that someone like Simone Biles could go into a brand. I think, Athleta's Simone Biles has massive. stronger brand than Athleta. Exactly, which changes the business dynamic. Totally, because like Simone Biles at Nike is just one of this big roster of like global top class athletes. There's always going to be a discussion around who has the final say. It's like the celebrity versus the brand, right? I yeah. mean, celebrity, obviously, I use this to group anyone, yeah, I get it. right? Yeah. And, you know, Nike as a brand has existed for this long because they've often prioritized brand and their sort of point of view versus any individual point of view. I'm sure they allow some of that to creep in from their high profile athletes. But in general, a sponsorship under Nike is more like you plug into their system. Yeah. Right. Versus you on the flip side, working with a smaller brand, you're working together to build a system. Yeah. yeah, And you could have really direct influence on things that the brand does beyond marketing and advertising. Yeah. For example, you might be able to say, oh, I want to make a line of, I don't know, 
sports bras that are for gymnasts. That would be a completely imaginable thing for them to champion. Yeah. And back to Mary Kane of Tracksmith, she said that younger athletes are now increasingly asking different types of questions. They're asking questions about sponsorships, health insurance, career skills, and other questions that maybe in the past weren't part of what you would expect as a student slash female athlete. They're kind of going far and wide to understand what type of relationships they can build. I mean, this speaks to something beyond sports, even about amount of knowledge and transparency across industries in how to get paid for your work, ways you can negotiate for a better deal for yourself. Like I would say that's true about creative industry as well, that young people entering at this moment, as opposed to like when we were teenagers, they have a lot more ability to like weigh their options and figure out what is best for them. Yeah. Like there's two things that I take away from this that are macro themes that I think are now tipping into the world of sponsorship. I think number one is the increased financialization of our world. And that means financial literacy. That means setting up certain deals. But it doesn't mean that financialization and financial outcomes are the only goal, right? It's not about me shopping around and finding the sponsors that are giving me the most money. But it's more about asking the right questions and potentially understanding its impact on you based off of the deal you're going to create. I think the second part of it is just, you're probably gonna have to help me with the best way to articulate this, but this younger incoming generation is far more value driven and the values themselves, I don't want to use the word woke, but basically it's like some sort of sliver of that also will influence the type of brand deals they're looking for. So like, for example, I could go to these three brands. This one pays me the most money, but they give me the least amount of freedom to tell my story and to use them as a platform. Versus this one that maybe has a middle tier of money, but a lot of creative freedom. So that's kind of what where I see these things. Like they're macro themes that have translated into these smaller, more microscopic type environments and outcomes. Part of me, the cynic of me, wonders how true that is, the value-driven aspect. Because I guess the, the best of both worlds is to get that like the best financial deal for yourself plus the value side of this. Mm. And maybe the appearance of being value-driven also happens to work out quite well financially at this moment. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. Like I, But I, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes the ones that are most value-driven aren't necessarily the biggest brands. In light of that, like the biggest brands arguably have a very different hierarchy. I suppose right? what I'm saying is it, and it doesn't have to be motivated out of like this pure good heartedness. We don't have to question, does the athlete at heart really care about climate change or not? It is at least a good thing that they think to ask that question and they are smart enough and savvy enough to know where the trend is headed that mm -hmm. they need to side with climate change as my example in this one regard. Yes. But yeah, I just wanted to kind of return to that point we talked about halfway through where there's been such a big shift in the deprioritization of sport. I mean, I don't say this in the, some heavy-handed way, but it's more that, you know, maybe pre-Naomi Osaka, you withdrawing for mental health reasons was probably not in your lexicon. Like, it wasn't something you considered. Mm -hmm. And it took someone to sort of spearhead this massive change that has sort of rippled, not to say that Simone Biles would or would not have done it, but perhaps, you know, 
a combination of the right brand sponsors that are in support of you as a person before an athlete, plus the attention around athlete mental health has just significantly changed it. And while I might sound like I'm deprioritizing sport, maybe, as you mentioned, this is actually this transitional period where athletes now will come back more resilient. They'll be better prepared, better rested, whatever that may be. I do think that your background in some ways dictates hunger, Mm. right? I think that for the most part, like that's one thing you can kind of harp on is like socioeconomic background arguably might have a contributing factor to one's outcome as an athlete Mm. because of a variety of things, right? Like there are certain sports where you may not see a ton of people from a certain socioeconomic background. And other sports where you'll see a, a lot, right? Yeah. I think you look at whether it's football, basketball, et cetera, like these are people that, you know, they, they didn't really have as many options. And that's obviously it'd be good to pull up a stat, but I think that it's it's fairly valid in that regard. I mean, I think that's co- there are definitely studies yeah. on this, like how many people go into equestrian events, right? Horses yeah. that requires having money yeah. to get into that. Or like racing etc so i i think that there's it's maybe partially coaching but it's also just a means to change your your situation your outcome like what i like as the outcome of this is that i don't doubt that female athletes should be given more sponsorship opportunities and in light of this and brands recognizing that i can work with you a different way versus you have to be the fastest and you have to participate in the most races, right? Even though that is sort of what dictates winning, quote unquote, winning or achieving in sport, it's changed it. What I'm thinking is also maybe deprioritization of sport, as we're calling it, in terms of like pushing for increasingly better athletic performance was the natural way things were headed in terms of societal values anyway, because as regular entertainment consumers or sports fans you're unlikely to have the ability to keep up to date with like 10 different sports and their rules and the top athletes and their performances Mm. it's much easier for you to just understand an individual athlete's story as a person yeah as opposed to like being really in admiration of their track record does that make sense yeah so you're more likely to just See, oh, Allison Felix, you know, yeah, it's interesting. Say, six time Olympian, maybe you don't need to know more as a consumer, and you just think, oh, she's got grit, she has discipline. That's kind of how it works, I think, for like yeah. the branding aspect in your head. Yeah. I mean, one, the one last point I want to bring up is that for some of these athletes, they want story and platform, like the story to be told and a platform to tell it. That's also shifting it because. In some ways, the athletes are now shifting from athletes to content creators or people that wish to have a message put out, which could loosely be defined as a content creator, right? So now it's like this two-pronged attack where, yes, my sport is my content as a form of entertainment for the audience, but also it's now the ability to tell a story. So I think that that's the part that's also interesting because it all comes back to an underlying belief i mean you and i don't have to really 
discuss this any further, but the whole world revolves around content as a central hub that goes into community and then goes into commerce. Like that's sort of what's developing here. Like they don't really talk about community, but you know that someone at Athleta is discussing, oh, how do we build a community around Allison Felix or Simone Biles, which then leads to like selling more tights. That's totally. just the reality of it. Totally. But that's about it for me. I mean, I'm kind of glad this was the topic that we ended up doing because it was something I felt passionate about, right? I, I think that, you know, this is in some ways an athlete making money off of their sport outside of just the performance aspect is not any different than anyone in the creator economy, really. It's just like an athlete is not considered necessarily a creator in that sense. I agree. Yeah. Should we move on? Let's do it. My subject this week, France gave teenagers $350 for culture. They're buying comic books. That title comes from New York Times author Aurelian Bruden. I don't know if I'd pick that as a subject line. So let me tell you what happened. The French government launched an app called the Culture Pass, and it was created by the Ministry of Culture. When you turn 18 in France, you get 300 euros to spend over two years on local cultural proposals and digital offers. You can spend the money on whatever you want that is within the app. There's like no limit to say, oh, you must spend, you know, 20 euros here, 20 euros there. You can buy books, concert tickets, theater tickets, digital subscriptions, museum passes, art lessons, etc. There's some limitations on the offers that which I think makes a lot of sense that are restricted to French businesses and companies. So no Amazon, for example. If I was the French Ministry of Culture, that's Mm -hmm. like a no-brainer. And the point of this New York Times article was a little bit to hate on comic books because so far, books have been 75% of everything that's been purchased on the app since it was introduced in May. And roughly two-thirds of those books were manga, according to the creator's they supplied these stats. And I went to the comments for this article, and there were two things that people brought up, which I thought was like great counterpoints to the main argument of the article. One is that comic book culture is different in France as opposed to the States, where it's not considered quotation marks lowbrow. And the other thing that a lot of commenters said, which I agreed with, was that if children are reading or does it matter what they're reading we're just happy that they're reading i mean comic books and fiction are kind of synonymous just one has images right like i think thematically it doesn't mean that comic books are necessarily the lowest common denominator i think there's there's been a lot of times when comic book artists and writers have shown a degree of commentary or insight into the how the world works yeah i mean i personally love comic books so i don't think we need to really spend this section defending comic books in in comparison to other cultural artifacts but there are french critics who said that the initiative is really expensive and is just wasting money on something that will wind up supporting mainstream media so this one critic named jean-michel tobelum said that you don't need to push young people to go see the latest marvel movie there is nothing wrong with pop music or blockbusters 
You can enter Korean culture through K-pop and then discover that there's a whole cinema of literature, painters, and composers that go with it. Um, but the author goes on to say that he remained unconvinced that the culture past was going to encourage people to, quotations, engage with works that are more demanding on an artistic level. And these critics were saying, oh, what could have worked better is for the government to provide more structure in terms of what they could engage with. And my question in response to this is, do you think young people need that kind of help in expanding their cultural horizons? No, because I think that, yeah, I think in short, like you kind of need to go through the motion and then find out where you land versus being told. It's like the whole thing around being told, don't touch that hot plate, but then you touching it and burning yourself and learning a lesson from it. Yeah. I think I look at that from that perspective because when I was growing up, I was very fortunate in that my parents definitely prioritized school, but they also didn't really put these enforced barriers on where I could explore, right? And I look back on it, I think that it provided so much more sort of worldly experience. I mean, relatively speaking, I grew up in like a small town in Canada, right? So there's a, only so much you can experience, but that whole process itself allowed me to probably figure out who I was, what I liked and didn't like. Because I think when you are restricted, you have challenges in figuring out who you are or like what you like, because there's a forbidden fruit over there I can't touch. And when I do touch it, maybe I'm like 27 and I have no one to sort of guide me through that process. I'm making yeah. this up, right? Yeah. No, like, I agree. When drinking I... is a good example. Like I think that in a lot of <laughs> not what I thought. cultures that have, you know, drinking just sort of built in and it's not like, hey, you're 13, go and get hammered. It's more like, hey, you can have a glass of wine. It's at... more casual. Yes. It's not and this it... huge like barricade erected. It's like you're walking in through the shallow end versus you turn 18 or 21 and you're like jumping into the deep end. Yeah. When I first saw this article shared, I don't remember if it was your, if I happened to see it earlier, I thought it was really great. Just like off the bat, I was like, to get $350 or 300 euros to spend how I wanted on arts and culture, I definitely know how to spend that already. And how'd I you feel spend like it? On, books on books as well. Same as, I mean, not necessarily comic books, but when I was a teen, but definitely on books to begin with. Because I think that, like you said, kids, young people already have things that they want to explore further, regardless of what that is. It could be manga or K-pop. It could be opera and what, I guess, more traditional people consider highbrow. But they don't yeah. necessarily have like the opportunity to explore that further or not yeah. encouraged to consider it as anything more than like a passing interest. Yeah. So just having that money to with no strings attached is a great way for them to find out, you know, am like, I more interested in this or not? Yeah. Am I interested in that or not? Here, here's a really simple exercise and it, it's to speak to timing as an individual. What are things that you were into when you were 18 that you aren't into now and vice versa? There's tons of things. Like I would not look at certain literary works or certain topics as interesting to me when I was 21 or yeah. 18, but even though I was playing video games, you know, drinking, partying, whatever, when I was like 18 through 22, like portrait it, of Eugene as a young man. Yo, it doesn't mean that I've suddenly like only gone down that one path. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like an 18 year old 
spending or investing 300 euros into manga is not going to be detrimental in the long term unless they were already on some sort of path to just fully consume themselves in this type of culture or behavior. There are a couple of additional complex layers to this cultural past in France. And a part of it is a little bit of socioeconomic classism. There is a critic of the initiative named Pierre Ozolias, who is a senator for the French Communist Party. And he said, a kid from the projects will lean toward what he already knows. I can't for one moment imagine a kid using the past to go listen to Baroque opera. If you leave individuals to their own devices, you perpetuate social discrimination. Yeah. And I hate that statement. Essentially, he's saying that if you grew up in less fortunate circumstances, you won't have interests worth engaging in. That's my interpretation of what he's saying, is that your circumstances are going to dictate you only being interested in some things. Yeah. And which also, I don't think it's true. And it's also who's to dictate what is good yeah. and bad culture, and right? Say, and yeah. And the way he phrases this is to oppose manga and to put that on some like lower end of this cultural spectrum and to put Baroque opera on the other side, which is, again, I think dismissive and patronizing. Yeah. So actually from a little bit more of that complex layer, Macron himself, Emmanuel Macron, he said, I'll take 30 seconds of your time. And oh, he announces on TikTok, by the way, mm. which is an interesting detail. He says, I'll take 30 seconds of your time, whether you're into movies, museums, novels, video games, rock music, or all of it, the culture pass is for you to spend how you want. So at least from the main guy, that's the messaging that they're getting. And yeah. I, I will say this, it's worked out quite positively for the Ministry of Culture because the app reported that 73% of young users are discovering new cultural activities and 32% went to a museum for the first time. That's exactly what I was going to get at. That's is, huge. Is that if you could gently nudge them to be like, hey, you know, you were probably buying mangas before, but if I give you the, these 300 euros, yeah. can you experiment? Well, maybe you spend 100 euros like, on manga because that's what you yeah. want at the moment. And then you're like, oh. Maybe me and my friends will go to a museum this weekend. Yeah, it's kind of like a universal basic income for culture, right? I'm giving you 300 bucks, 300 euros to spend it as you wish. And that's sort of the expected outcome that's come with UBI is that you won't necessarily stop working, but you might pursue certain other opportunities, right? Yeah. You might work less potentially, but I think that that's what I... What I'm trying to get at is that it's a sense of freedom for experimentation and exploration. And sometimes if you put too many parameters on a measurable outcome, that's when things kind of fail. Because that kid that went to the museum, sure, he might not go to another museum for nine months, but he might have had a riveting experience that, you know, in a year's time when he goes to university, like, hey, you know what, I'm going to pick courses based off of history or something. Totally. Yeah. And also, this is a bit of a tech tip, which I was thinking about. They reported that nationwide, 630,000 teenagers are currently using it. And that is a huge success for app adoption. But obviously, it's because like you download and, you know, make an account or whatever, and then you get 300 euros. 
this is just making me think like there's a lot of privacy concerns. But what I'm going to say is like if governments adopted that strategy where they made, you know, their government approved app and said, if you download it and use it, you get X amount of money to spend in this way. People would download it and make an account. Yeah, it would. It would work. Yeah. So I, I was just thinking how at this moment it's for the culture pass. But over the next couple of years, they could expand this into some other type of culture based offering. And they already have all these teenagers on their app, all these young people like this audience that's focused on them as opposed like to trying to get to them through paid social on Instagram, essentially. Yeah. I wish we had this in Hong Kong. That was my conclusion. <laughs> not that I'm a teenager anymore, so I would not directly benefit. Teenager at heart. But I think it would be good just as like an injection into your city's arts and culture as yeah. well, right? Yeah. So that's a bit of feel-good news, I think, for me. Um, if you're in a position of power, go tell your city to <laughs> give you 300 bucks to spend on books. Yeah. Good place to wrap things up. Yeah. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.